Good morning and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm your host Carol Meng. Today we will examine ways of thinking about institutions, behavior, and governance by raising several fundamental questions. Professor Tenshir Yan from the University of Southern California will help us understand some of the challenges of building and sustaining good governance in China, the United States, and beyond. Professor Tang was invited by the United College at the Chinese University of Hong Kong to give a talk entitled "How to Think About Institutions, Behavior, and Governance." My topic today is. How to think about institutions, behavior, and governance? So one way to begin to think about it is, in a way, counterintuitive. As Professor Law explained earlier, that when I was in graduate school, my mentor were Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom. Is where I learned mostly my skills in doing institutional analysis. But then, what is institutional analysis? The counterintuitive aspect about it is how to think about institutions is not to think about institutions to begin with. What is the reason behind that? The reason behind that is what are institutions for? Institutions are for what? Solving problems. So when you want to do institutional analysis. One is the first thing we have to do is to think about how to define the problem you want to use institutions to help to solve. So then the most important thing is, for example, in different academic disciplines, that different fields and academic disciplines tackle different types of problems. For example, if you are in economics, one of the problem you deal with mostly. Would be about how to facilitate the production and distribution of private goods, right? In that case, that we all know that an open competitive market, in most cases, would be a good institutional arrangement to facilitate the production and distribution of private goods. But we people studying public administration, public policy. The types of problems we usually face are issues related, for example, about collective action. So, in my case, when I was a graduate student study under Professor Eleanor Ostrom, the major problem we want to tackle is problem about the use of common pool resources. Okay. So then, the main idea is if we identify a problem, say in this case about how to Manage different types of natural resources because of their physical characteristics. You have to find a way so that people can actually share the resource equitably as well as sustainably, in order to have an effective way of preserving the resource. So in this case, you have to think about institutional arrangements that help us to overcome. Many types of collective action problems. So, in connection with the idea of institutions, obviously, we have to focus on a lot of the rules and regulations governments or authorities could or have to develop in order.
to coordinate our use, for example, the use of common pool resources. But, but institutions are not just about what the government says we have to do. A lot of the most important political and social institutions are informally based, meaning that there are no central authority promulgating or enforcing specific set of rules. Some set of rules we all understand exist. We know that if we don't follow them, there are social sanctions against uh, our attempt for non-compliance. So when we study institutions, by no means are we talking about just the formal government institutions. We look at the interaction between formal and informal institutions. Then as an institutional analyst, what we do is to think about how informal and formal institutions together shape the constraints, opportunities, and incentives facing the people involved. Then the key thing is about how to identify the underlying mechanisms. So in this regard, there's one major concept actually is the concept I learned when I was in United College uh, studying government and public administration is the idea about situational logic. It's actually an idea proposed by Karl Popper, meaning that how do we understand the effect of social institutions on the individuals involved is to think about it from the perspective of the individuals. What are the situational logic shaped by the underlying institutions that we can, you know, uh, uh, we understand if we use, uh, develop a certain set of rules and regulation, how would it affect people's perception? How we affect people's way of engaging in collective action? Then in relation to that, there's in a way some kind of value component, at least in the types of institutional analysis I study under Professor Eleanor Vincent Ocham is the idea about conceiving the use of institutions not as necessarily a coercive arrangement. Because you think about government rules and regulations, right? Why are they effective? It's because if you don't follow them, there are sanctions, negative consequences. So ultimately, rules have to be based on the, or you may say should be effective at the end under the shadow of coercion, so to speak. But the kind of approach I developed from learning from the Ostrom is the idea about can we conceptualize developing institutions that are based on the principle of reciprocity? What does it mean? Meaning that is it possible people can engage with each other, develop reasonable rules and rules that are suitable to the problems we need to solve and work together to, to make them better, to actually help enforce them. So this is the idea about actually people engaging with each other using institutions, not based on coercion, but based on the principle of reciprocity. Now, that gets to another almost like a fundamental thesis. Uh, the thesis about what is the fundamental principle that would 
facilitate the development of effective governance is the idea of polycentricity. Meaning that if you think about, we need to develop rules that are appropriate to different types of problems. We use the principle of reciprocity to get people to develop rules and obey rules, not out of fear of being punished, but out of respect for each other, out of the understanding that the rules are reasonable, we all are willing to follow. So then if we think about these principles, then maybe almost the only basic principle for governance is a principle based on polycentricity, meaning that we allow people having different types of interests, forming their, what we call their community, identifying the communities of interest and develop reciprocal relationship, develop appropriate rules to help them to resolve problems. You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just heard Professor Tan Shiyan shed light on the definition and interplay between institutions, behavior, and governance. Next, he will enlighten us on how we can apply these theories to address challenges specifically in China. But just to this basic theory, right? How can we apply to think about China? Think about it. To what extent these are relevant to China? We all know that China traditionally, which I'll talk a little bit more later, we have more than thousand fifteen hundred years of highly centralized empires that are based on a principle of centralized government, and this system actually persists, meaning that in China the basic principle is what we call centralized policy making, but decentralized implementation. Meaning that it's still Beijing that has the ultimate policy-making authority, but most things are actually are passed on to the local level, provincial, county, city, township level to be implemented. Now, the problem with that kind of approach that is based on centralized policy-making, decentralized implementation, as I will explain a little bit further later, is the source of A persistent phenomenon in Chinese governance—the phenomenon of people seeing endless cycles of centralization, decentralization, and recentralization—meaning that you have a central authority. If you try to control everything too much, then things don't work out so well at the local level. Then you decentralize. But if you decentralize too much, then they begin to deviate more and more from what the central government wants them to do. Then you have to recentralize. Then the circle goes on and on and on. And we might complain that this kind of phenomenon hasn't died at all in contemporary China. But if you look back at history, that has been the pattern for many millennium. Okay. So my sense is not that. I could provide any magic solution, but it's kind of the direction for me to think about is how to break that kind, that kind of endless cycle. And where do where do I draw my inspiration is actually going back to 
my graduate school stay, uh, the days uh, as a graduate student at Indiana University. That my mentor are uh, both Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom. Two of their favorite books are, one is Democracy in America, written by Alexis de Tocqueville. The first volume was published 1830, quite a long time ago. But seldom known is, not at least among scholars, was uh, is his second book, The Old Regime and the Revolution. Okay? Now, so that book was published around 1850. Now, so what, why is the book, why are these two books so relevant to what I have to talk about is that in a way, Tocqueville is seeing the world quite similarly to what I'm seeing the world because of my background as, you know, a student in United College, the Chinese University, under government and public administration. We all care about the long-term development of China. Then we all can see some of the strengths as well as some of the perennial weaknesses of the Chinese system of government. Not just any regime, but because of the historical legacy, we all face this kind of problem inevitably. Then if you look back into some of those issues, these are exactly the same issue Alexis de Tocqueville dealt with in his second classic, The Old Regime and the Revolution. So I don't know whether you, many of you are old enough to remember this, even in contemporary China, about, I think it was seven, eight years ago, Wang Qishan actually recommended people to read the book. So actually a few years ago, I got a Chinese translation from uh, mainland China that was part of this kind of uh, fad about reading the old regime and the revolution uh, among uh, political units in China. So what is the reason? The reason everybody might give you a different answer, but my take about it is that, as you might know, the French history was 1789, the French Revolution, right? You overthrew the monarchy. But according to Tocqueville's analysis, the old regime, meaning a lot of the elements of the old regime, actually persisted beyond the revolution. That Tocqueville actually lived, I think he was born around the French Revolution. When he became a scholar, a writer, then 30 years later, after the French Revolution, that France was still in turmoil. France was still under the spell of a centralized government and the lack of strong local self-governance. Then it was at that historical juncture, Tocqueville came up with the idea about going to America at that time, early 1800s, to see how the U.S. runs its own democratic system and whether they can learn anything as a French person, learn anything from the U.S. So if you think about these historical parallels, it's almost like the mission I'm seeing myself, you know, being born and raised in Hong Kong, have deep, you know, attachment to China, you know, as a, a nation to make it, hope to make it work better, even better, you know, it's been doing well, but even better. And how, after spending about 40 years in the U.S., anything that we can think about in terms of how to configure improving Chinese governance 
using the basic principle of can we conceptualize the possibilities of building a governance system based on the principle of reciprocity, based on the principle of self-governance. How can we make it possible? Is there any inspirations we can draw from the U.S. or any other country? But perhaps I have to mention that I'm going to do some very quick comparisons between the U.S. and the Chinese system of governance. But by doing that, I'm not selling the idea that China should copy the U.S. And it wasn't, Tocqueville himself was actually thinking himself when he was writing his two books is to sometimes to, to try to single out both the strength as well as the weaknesses of a system. You have to do some comparison in order to draw out the distinctive features of your own system. So in this regard, so I totally talked about a lot of things, but in this lecture, I will focus on only one issue. That is a concept which is very interesting, but also kind of flawed to some extent, is his idea of how to develop a system using the principle of what he called centralized government and decentralized administration. Now, as I explained, so I'm going to do some translation later. I won't call it the same way as Tocqueville did, but I, the way I conceptualize it is, I would say, how do we conceptualize China as a unified nation based on local self-governance? That's what I was trying to think about. So, so then what, 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 what is the basic idea about is, is it possible to think about building a big, strong nation, unified, but also based on local self-governance? Drawing on, you have both vertical accountability, meaning you are accountable to national priorities developed by the central government. But at the same time, the central government can recognize the basic principle of good local self-governance. The basic issue is how to strike a delicate balance between these two major considerations. So what I was telling people was that you think about, say, there are always controversies as one of the re reliable, reasonable indicators for assessing a country's governing, governing system. So these are very common. So as a student, you can always go to the World Bank governance uh, score website. They have done this kind of scoring for the last 30 years or so. So you can see, so I just pick up the most recent one, 2021. So you think about all this governance indicator, China doesn't do well in everything, right? But you can say overall, if you look at government effectiveness, at, at least back in 2021, it's 76%. Kind of basically not bad, right? Almost like if you do a statistical correlation between this kind of, kind of basic overall government effectiveness as well as your income level, China is almost right at the, the right, right, right into the, into the regression line, right? So you said, 
China is not, you know, not doing bad. It's quite normal the way that China is developing. Then, of course, the question could be, could China improve on any of these goals, right? But then I have another one, which is about control of corruption, which admittedly, right, you compare with 2004 with 2021. China has actually made a lot of improvement in terms of corruption control, right? So then the question is, so does China need to further reform its governance to make it even better? My answer is yes. You know, so then the thing is, what are your complaints <laughs> at the moment, right? At least a lot of common complaints. I won't even go to the details, you know, go to each one of them. Now, the reason I, I listed that is not that China is unique in having this problem. Many other pro most other countries in the world, the U.S., they all have this kind of problem. But if you look at each one of them, you might say, okay, we all agree China has not been perfect. There are a lot of things that China can respond. Okay, so I won't go into that. Now, what I have complaints about is what are the usual remedies, right? So if you say, I think it must be almost 10 years ago of food safety regulation deficiency, right? So then you say, what are the usual impulses in China when you identify a problem that becomes well-known, make everyone unhappy, right? You launch a political policy campaign, tighten control from the center, more moral exhortation, increased penalties. But the problem is ultimately, most remedies are still based on top-down relationship. Then if you are political campaign, usually you yield some immediate benefits, positive outcome. But are they sustainable? Then I would say, if you go back to a lot of these problems, then if you look at the literature, you can, for each one, you can identify more or less the same typical pattern, cycles of centralization, decentralization, and recentralization. Okay, now, then what can we do about it? So that goes to my first book, the 10 principal books that I said in that book that how do we rethink governance in China? And in that particular book, actually the first version of it, I presented it at the uh, National Academy of Governance. That's how it was called back then, you know, uh, so then my major argument is that if you think about this problem, you have to think about it at two levels. So at one level, what I called the operational level. So sometimes why do people have difficulty follow rules? It's because if the rules are not clear and reasonable, enforcement is inconsistent. If you have a situation where you have the rules on the book, but no one follows, that you have informal rules that actually trump formal rules, those are at the operational level make or encourage people not to follow the formal rules. So then of course we don't we want to change the operational way we deal with rules, right? But then my main argument is is where governance governing structure comes in. Meaning that what are the systems, what are the characteristics of the system that 
would help us to develop better rules, rules that are more suited to the problems we have to solve. How do we develop an accountability system that is not just based on vertical, but also horizontal accountability? How do we create credible constraints to hold those in power accountable? Those are the governance features that we have to develop as the broader framework within which we can hope to develop better rules and enforcement that is more effective and reasonable. Okay? So that's basically what I deal with in my first book. But then as I reflected further, that it's all easy for you to say that, but China is so complex. How do you suggest practical step to move forward. So that led me to think further, right? To think about some more operational issue to think deep. So if you say you're so smart, give me some idea, agenda about how to move forward, right? That gives me to have a confession because uh, the description for my lecture kind of, sorry, is kind of a misadvertisement because I listed all these questions saying that I'm going to tackle all of them. But Actually, I'm only going to talk about one, the one issue about now to realize what I proposed. You remember what I proposed? All these, how to develop a system where we fit rules to the scale of the problems, that we make decisions at the level that is closest to the community affected by them. That is actually the principle of polycentricity, right? So this, how do you realize that? The way to realize that, as I'm trying to argue here, is to actually think about Tocqueville's argument about centralized government and decentralized administration. Okay? Now, that gets to something actually when we were having lunch earlier today, we were talking about, now, to think about institutional development in China, even the West, has been changing their view about development in China, not just among policymakers. Actually, even the scholars themselves have kind of a change of mind about China. I think in the recent, in the past several years or the past decade, because if you look back, I remember many prominent political scientists in the U.S. back then in the 90s were proclaiming very confidently that look at what's happening in China with opening the you know, market, free market, you know, reform and so forth, is almost inevitable. China will become more like the West as time goes by, okay? But now, as I've been, because of the pandemic, I've been spending more time reading more books. And actually, more and more scholars, not just policymakers, are beginning to think in the longer term, that you think about 40 years would have made such a difference, drawing China as close to the US as you know, we'll never experience. But if you think about the long-term trajectory in the last 2000 years, the story is more complex. I mean, China does have its own unique developmental trajectory, okay? Now I'm going to highlight some of those arguments very soon. But then, in my view, then the question is, given 
the long historical legacy of China as a highly centralized, huge nation, to what extent is feasible to find a way to develop what I call a unified nation based on local self-governance, okay? Or in other, in other words, it's similar to Tocqueville's argument about how to make centralized government and decentralized administration feasible. That was Professor Tan Shu Yan from the University of Southern California. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters. Thank you.